Let's pray together. Father in heaven, as we open your word and seek its counsel, we pray, Lord, that the Spirit, your Holy Spirit, would uh, instruct our minds and our hearts, open our hearts that we may receive it, and that you would bless us with it. We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. I'd ask you to first turn your bio, in your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, we will be looking at verses 14 through 16. But before we do, I want to start off with a biblical illustration from Luke chapter 21, verses 1 through 4. Jesus is watching people put money in the treasury. And of course, those who are wealthy, who are blessed with with many resources are putting large sums of money into the treasury and following up these men who are doing so as this widow and she has what is considered two mites less than a penny's worth to put into the offering plate to put into the treasury and she puts it in there and Jesus tells his disciples who are looking on with him he says look at at this woman Look at this widow. These, these men who went before her gave out of their plenty. They're just giving a tithe. She's giving out of her necessity. She's giving her all. I tell you that she, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. <clears throat> all these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she out of poverty put in all she had to live on. What is she doing? She's trusting in God with her whole life, with everything that he will provide. Dr. Warren Wearsby comments on this scene saying, compared to the gifts of the rich men, her two copper coins seemed insignificant. But Jesus said that she gave more than all the others combined. The widow's might does not represent the least we can give, but the most our very all. When we sing, take my silver and my gold, not a mite would I withhold. We are telling God that everything we have belongs to Him. When it comes to giving, God sees more than the portion. He also sees the proportion. Men see what is given, but God sees what is left. And by that, He measures the gift and the condition of our hearts. The widow is trusting in God with her whole life, and this situation is very similar to another widow in 1 Kings 17 who is asked by the prophet Elijah to provide him with a cake of bread and some water. The problem is, is the widow had the water and she gave him that, but she only had enough flour just a handful of flour for her and her son to make, and then after they ate it, they would face starvation. And here is God's prophet saying, if you give to me first, in other words, if you give first to the Lord, God will provide and supply your needs. Out of faith she did so. She took a portion of the flour 
and a portion of the oil that was left. She made a cake of bread and gave it to the man of God. And in so doing, it was like she was giving it to the Lord himself, the first fruits, before she partook of anything. And then her expectation was likely, even though she was doing this out of faith, now I will make some what, what is left for me and my son and then prepare for what comes, which is probably the slow process of starvation. But you know what happened? Elijah promised her that if she did this, God would provide for her needs. And the oil never ran out of her jar. And the flour never ran out of its jar. Whatever she used up, God would resupply. God would provide. And you would sit there and think, well, pastor, isn't this more about faith? Yes, and faith is connected to joy. The reason we have joy in our hearts is because 2,000 years ago or better, God sent his son into this world to live a holy and righteous life and then to offer that life as a sacrifice for our sin, to give his whole for us so that by believing in him we will not perish but have life. How long is that life? It is everlasting. Whatever we stand in need of, our Lord will supply. That brings joy to our hearts. When your future is secure, that is a reason to rejoice. When your future is unsecure, that creates fear and discouragement and a whole host of other emotions that come to the fore. So what emotional response would a woman like this have if she thought that she had cooked her last meal and would face starvation only to discover again that however much she used up of the flour and the oil, the Lord continued to replenish her supply when there was little or no food to be had by anyone in that day. God is the source of our joy as God is the giver of life. What the widow did was in line with the Lord's command in Matthew 6, verse 33. Seek first my kingdom, the kingdom of the Lord, and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Whatever you stand in need of, the Lord will supply for you. So think about it this way. Can any of us outgive the Lord our God? And you know, when I make that statement, I think everybody jumps to the idea of material wealth. And that's not what's being... That's not what is being meant here. Can any of us outgive the Lord our God, not just in the sense of material resources, but in the sense of love, in the sense of power, in the sense of wisdom, and so forth? Can any of us outgive God? Then whatever power, wisdom, love, resources God gives us, we should use for His glory. Because whatever we put out, God will supply for us. And yes, again, it is tied to faith, trusting in God. And yet, as we think of that as his people, how often do we act more like orphans than sons and daughters? Thinking we have very little to offer, not just in the sense of material wealth, but in these other areas as well, love and power and wisdom and so forth. 
And thus, what do, we, what do we do? But we start thinking that we need to hang on to whatever we are given, lest we lose it. How much do we act like the third servant in Matthew 25 who hid his master's money in the ground for safekeeping instead of investing it in this world to carry out his master's business? Why would you be inhibited from investing what God gives you into this world to glorify him and advance his kingdom? Well, that servant said that his master is a hard man. Uh, the work is difficult. He says his master seeks a harvest where he is not sown and gathers where he is not scattered seed. Well, what kind of work is this servant talking about? He's talking about loving your enemies and praying for those who persecute you. That's the hard work he's talking about. And trust me, that is hard work. It's easy to love those who love you. It is hard to love those who despise you. It's easy to show kindness to someone who is like-minded. It is hard to show kindness to someone who is opposed to you. And yet, what is the work that Christ calls us to? Look in your Bibles now at Romans 12, verses 14 through 16. Romans 12, 14 through 16. The Apostle Paul writes, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. As you look at this text, you notice that there are three prohibitions that tell us what we are not to do. Verse 14 says we are not to curse those who persecute us. Verse 16 says we are not to be proud and we are not to be conceited. Why does Paul tell us these things not to do? Because this is what we are prone to do. This is what naturally flows out of us as sinful human beings. If someone seeks to do you harm, uh, to harm your reputation or to harm your business or to even harm you personally, the natural response is to pay them back. Uh, at least to call down curses on them in prayer, that, that if you can't reach them, if you can't touch them, that God would touch them. That God would make their lives miserable. Have you read the story of Jonah? <laughs> it is also not difficult to be proud or haughty, thinking you deserve God's mercy and blessings, but those whom you don't uh, like, they should not receive God's mercy or blessing especially not his mercy shown through you to them. Again, have you read the story of Jonah? The ESV better captures the idea of conceit here that follows up the matter of haughtiness. The literal translation is, never be wise in your own sight. Never be wise in your own sight. Being wise in your own eyes speaks to that smug sense of self-sufficiency and self-righteousness. Uh, you are righteous because of what you do. That's the sense right there. 
Your general assumption is that you are right and the burden is on your opponent to prove you wrong, even when the opponent working to convict you of your sin is God himself. Yet it can be the case that even if you are proven wrong, you still won't admit it because you have classified your opponent's reasoning uh, as having insufficient evidence or labeled them as foolish. Don't these actions flow freely from sinful hearts and minds? And I know when I bring this up, it's easy to look at the world outside of the church, but this can happen inside of the church as well. So we have noted that the source of our joy is the life of God that sustains us, giving us life. But that life flows out of God's love for us, especially His grace and mercy. We see this in John 3, verse 16 and 17. Oftentimes we read verse 16 and we just cut it off. But verse 17 is right there with it and needs to be understood. For God so loved the world... This is God's grace, His kindness. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth on Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into this world to condemn it, to curse it. Now, think about this. Were we God's friends or God's enemies before He sent His Son into this world? And if you say as friends, then why did man crucify him? We were his enemies. You see what God, this is God the Father sending his Son into this world, not to condemn it, but that the world through him, through his Son, might be saved. And God knows exactly, his Heavenly Father knew exactly what was going to happen to his Son when he sent him into this world. He knew the conditions. He knew what his son would face. And he knew what his son would have to accomplish in order to reconcile us to himself. And he did so anyway. God made salvation possible out of his love for us. Hebrews 12, verses 2 through 3 says... Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. What joy was set before Jesus? I thought he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, he died, and he was buried. Where's the joy in that? Oh, the joy comes after. Verse 2 says, Jesus endured the cross, scorning its shame. To shame is to humble someone because of wrongdoing. The crucifixion was one of the most humiliating deaths anyone could, could go through. And the Roman world knew it. They wanted to make sure that they made an example of you. So they would strip you down. They would nail you to that cross. They would flog you beforehand. And all you were was a heap and a bloody mess up there waiting to die. 
And while you're dying, you were ridiculed by people saying, yeah, you got what you deserved. Yes, you're there because you deserve this. They're, they're heaping insults on you. Telling you why you're so cursed, why you're, you're so evil, why you're so rotten, why you deserve everything that you have coming to you. Our world doesn't do that today, does it? As it did back then. It's to humble because of wrongdoing. That is shame. But Jesus gave his life as a sacrifice because he was doing what is right in the eyes of his heavenly Father. Instead of being humbled at the hands of wicked men, Jesus triumphed over sin and death. The joy here of Jesus was that he knew he would come out of the tomb alive. Death could not hold him. In his selfless, gracious work, Jesus completed his heavenly Father's will to lift the condemnation from all who place their faith in him, reconciling you to God forever. There are two places you will go. There are two places I will go. Or one or the other. I'm either going to go to heaven or to hell. And when you go to either of those places, that is permanent. If you go to the mall, that's not permanent. If you go home, even though you've lived there, let's say, 60 years, that's still not permanent. When you go to heaven or hell, that is permanent. God sent His Son into this world to, be, to become a curse for us so that we might receive His righteousness through His atoning blood. And the, con the condemnation that was set upon us was placed on Him. He was lifted from us so that out of the joy of the Lord, looking forward to what He would accomplish, what He would achieve, He knew that He would gain for us life everlasting in the presence of His heavenly Father and the whole heavenly host forevermore. That is the joy set before him. If then the love of God is the source of your joy, what is the evidence of that love that God's love is at work in you? What is the evidence that God's love is at work in you? When you go back to Romans 12 verses 14 through 16, each of these positive commands of blessing those who persecute you, rejoicing with those who rejoice, and mourning with those who mourn, uh, striving to live in harmony with one another all reflect transformed attitudes that harken back to verse 2 in Romans 12 where Paul says that we are to be renewed through the transforming of our minds. That is the work of the Holy Spirit, the life of Christ in us, transforming, changing our perspective on life, changing how we see people. Not, not as the world sees, but as God sees them. These commands show what this transformed, renewed mind looks like, driven by the love of God. It blesses enemies who have persecuted them. It sympathizes with others in their joys and sorrows, and it demonstrates genuine humility. That's what a transformed life reveals. That's what the love of Christ working in us expresses and shows. Pastor Stephen Cole states, these commands are all rooted in selflessness or self-denial. We can only bless our persecutors and not curse them if we are more concerned about their eternal welfare than we are about our temporal suffering. 
We can only rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep if our focus is off of ourselves and on their situation. We can only be of the same mind with one another and not be haughty or wise in our own estimation if our eyes are on the Lord and others and not on ourselves. Selflessness is the thread that ties all three of these verses intimately together. This selfish selflessness reveals the agape love of God who giveth more grace. And that's a song I love. He giveth more grace as our burdens grow greater. He sendeth more strength as our labors increase. To added afflictions he addeth his mercy. To multiply trials he multiplies peace. All these things God gives to you. Recognizing that you can never outgive him. You cannot outspend him. Because he will keep giving you what you stand in need of. His love has no limits. His grace has no measure. His power no boundary known unto men. For out of his infinite riches in Jesus, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. The source of our joy is God's love that flows freely to us through Jesus Christ. This love is not meant for us to hoard, but to freely share. Not only with those inside of these walls, but also with those outside of the church. Even with those who may despise you and hate you. Yes, even with them is God's love to be shared. Because the life that matters is a life that is lived to the glory of God. Not to us. Not to us be the glory. But to your name be the glory because of your unfailing love, Heavenly Father and your faithfulness revealed so marvelously through the offering of life everlasting through your Son who is our source of joy. Amen.